Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Andrea Owen. Now, Andrea is um, someone who I've been really interested to talk to for a while. She's got a fantastic website. She's written two amazing books, one which I think is in production at the moment and one which is um, going to be really interesting to talk about. Um, and she's got a site that's very focused on um, females and women and such like, so um, I feel quite privileged being able to talk to her today about her world and my world and how things hang together. And her site's called yourkickasslife.com. And um, good afternoon, Andrea. Hi, Russell. Good morning. Well, good morning for me. I'm super glad to be here. Now, you're, you're sometime in the middle of the morning, and I'm sometime in the, in the end of the afternoon. Where are you talking to me from today? I am on the east coast of the States. I'm in North Carolina. Fantastic. I'm trying to picture that on my mental map of <laughs> the U.S., we're um, sort of in the. We're sort of. Uh, if you look all along the east coast of the states, we're in the. We're like one of the middle states on the coast. Right. Oh wow! So you're getting all that fantastic weather and snow dumps and snowballs yeah. and all that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, it was terrible. So I was actually in New York on the first leg of my book tour when that cold snap hit. It was so bad over here that even Florida was cold. And for Florida to get cold, you know, Florida is the state of palm trees and sunshine year round. They even dropped temperatures. And yeah, I was in New York. It, there was a blizzard. It was so cold. And then I went to Chicago <laughs> right wow. after that. No, it's, <laughs> so it's been, it's, it's been cold over here. It's funny you just said that because at the time it was happening, I was in Florida and it was, and it was, and it, and it dropped to the forties at night yeah. in Florida and they were having hysterics because, you know. That is very, that is like below zero for people in yeah. Canada, you know, like forties <laughs> yeah. for Floridians is. Yeah, that's unheard of. I mean, people were people were sort of dressing to their ankles and not to their knees. You know, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Yeah, it was it was quite quite an, an upheaval of, of temperatures. Fantastic. Well, if you were to bump into someone in a, in a um, at a party or someone who was looking at uh, your site, what would you what would you say you did, Andrea? How, how would you describe <laughs> what you do? It's such a good question because personal development is sometimes so hard to explain to people. But I have narrowed it down to what I really do is I help specifically, like you said, I help women who struggle in the areas of perfectionism and negative self-talk and comparison and they struggle a lot with control as well. I help them gain better coping mechanisms in their lives as well as step into things like courage and confidence, things that they are at a point in their life where they know that they want more of, they just don't know how to get there. Wow. Okay. So this is a huge, huge area. So how did you, how did you decide to do what you're doing today? What's your sort of life story? I was, before this, the industry that I was in was, I was, um, I actually dressed mannequins and store windows for a department store. It was really fun. And then I went and finished my bachelor's degree in exercise physiology, kinesiology, I think is what you call it over there. And 
I was in the fitness industry as well, and I had a life-changing moment. It was back in the early 2000s, I had heard about life coaching and knew what it was. It was still very, very early on in its infancy, and I had also looked into being a therapist, but for some reason didn't feel that that was what I wanted to do. And I thought to myself, and I actually said out loud to my husband at the time, it's sort of ironic now, but I said to him, this life coaching thing seems really neat and seems like something I can do. But I think that if you were going to be a life coach, you would probably need a little bit more life experience than I have. You know, when I was in my mid twenties at the time, I was very young and funny enough, two years after that conversation I had with him, we were married at the time and we were, um, having conversations about trying to conceive our first child together. We had been together for almost 14 years at that point, a very long time. He had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. And it was quite um, a dramatic, (laughs) it was quite a dramatic and traumatic time in my life. We obviously split up, but truth be told, Russell, if he would have tried to work it out with me, I probably would have tried to work it out. I was not in a great place with my own confidence and not listening to my intuition, et cetera. And then right after that relationship ended, instead of trying to heal myself and spending some time alone, which would have been the healthy thing to do, I decided to start dating again and met someone who I thought was Mr. Right. And I was essentially conned. I was conned out of thousands of dollars. This person actually lied about having cancer to cover up his opioid addiction. And um, nine months into that relationship was really my rock bottom of my life. And I start my, my second book, I start the introduction talking about that period of my life and how um, how awful it really was. But it was it was such a wake up call for me. And that's really you know, for, for the sake of sounding very cliche, it was when I was reborn and I had an opportunity to start to learn how to take care of myself emotionally and heal from many, many things. And that was 11 years ago. And, you know, here I am now. So that's really interesting. So a lot of people who um, are interested in resilience, you know, understand this idea that you need to, you need to get it wrong in order to learn to get it right. And then and learning to get it right, you become stronger in your life. And, and if you don't get things wrong, you've not taken a risk and therefore you never do the learning. So it's it's more healthy to get things wrong and then learn from it than it is to avoid it in the first place, isn't it? Um, I, 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 when you were at rock bottom, what was that like? Oh man, it was awful. Um, it was, I was humiliated. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I was furious. I was terrified. It was at the same time, the most exhilarating moment of my life, because for the first time I was, I was handed an opportunity. I was handed an invitation from God or the universe or whatever you want to call it. I know it was something bigger than me that took me by the shoulders and said, Hey, this is your life and you need to stop doing all these patterns and behaviors and, and learn to live. And, um, yeah, I was, I was terrified I, I, to, to actually be with myself, Russell. And when I mean be with myself, I, I always say I didn't know how to take care of myself. And sure, I knew how to, how to do laundry and pay bills and all of those things, but I didn't know how to take care of myself emotionally. I had engineered my life to put that on somebody else. I thought it was other people's responsibility to take care of me and to make me happy and to make me feel loved and esteemed and all of these things. And for the first time, I had to look in the mirror and decide to do that for myself. So I think in a nutshell, I was terrified. You know, that's really interesting because we talk a lot about accountability and you know resilience mm-hmm. and accountability go so 
clearly together. And whatever the reason is, the whatever the reason is that generated is this idea that you actually take accountability for your life and yeah, and it's, it's part of the issue, isn't it? Because actually, we all we often we're often as adults looking back and you know quite quite unused to thinking for ourselves, quite used to actually being aware of ourselves because we sort of drift from you know, a normal childhood through university or college or whatever it might be into a job with a relationship. And it's only it's only sometimes when it goes wrong that you actually wake up and think, actually, well, what it is, what is this all really all about? And what is it I actually want for myself? And you get a sense yeah. of purpose for your own life. Exactly. And and that it was that accountability. And I, I just never, you know, and this is not at all to, of course, not at all to blame and shame my parents. I had a, I had a lovely childhood. Sure. The, only, the only thing I think that my parents could have improved on is that we never talked about hard things. I think this is very common in, in you know, in your part of the world as well as over here in, in the States that we didn't talk about hard things. You know, we swept things under the rug. If, you know, if we don't talk about it, maybe it'll go away. Yeah. And um, that's really sort of the the family mantra that we had. And I didn't know how to, just the fundamental things of, of healthy communication. And there was just no communication at all. You know, I, I kind of half joke that we had one feeling in our family and it was happiness. And if you had any others, you went and did that in your room by yourself. And when you were done, you came out and, and joined the family again. And, and I was, again, I think that's part of, part of my terror in that I didn't know how to do any of that. And also I should mention, I had never followed my intuition. My intuition told me when I was 19 years old that I should not be in that relationship anymore, but I continued to be with this person, and then I married him. And even my intuition told me not to marry him. I married him anyway. And then on the first date with that man that I told you about that had conned me, my intuition was saying, something's not right about this, but I couldn't put my finger on it, and he was funny and handsome, and so I continued to date him. And and so that wake-up call also was confirmation to me that I had more power than I actually thought that I did. And it was up to me to listen. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've opened two, two boxes there. One which is the this idea that we live our lives on show. You know, that with families, we always have to be seen to be nice or to be good or to be happy, the way you describe it, which is fantastic. And the second thing is your intuition is really interesting as well, isn't it? Because... It's very hard to know your intuition's right when it's the first time you've experienced it. Because actually, right. when you, when you, especially the first relationship, and, and, and you know, you, you've not got a lot of experience to know that this intuition is something to fall back on. But also, there's this terror, isn't there, for people about being on their own. There's a real, mm -hmm. there's a social problem with it sometimes. We, we're, not, we're not engineered to be on our own. And so actually this, and I meet lots of people of both genders in relationships who would rather be in a miserable and happy marriage then they would either party be on their own, and and it's 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 a sort of it's a problem, isn't it? A problem. Oh, for that's all of exactly. Us. I say that all the time. Like I say that I I I knew I was conscious, especially in that second relationship. I was conscious that I would have rather have been in that relationship than none at all. Yeah. I was more comfortable in a dysfunctional romantic relationship yeah. than I was comfortable by myself trying to figure out who I was. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's the same for men and for women, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that we have in common. It's very rare to meet people who are, who are joyfully single, um, who, right. are, who are just happy having a good time. And, you know, um, I've got a couple of um, friends who are single, and the, the conversation often says, you know, when are you, getting, you know, when are you going to be with someone? And they'll say, right. well, why would I want to be? I'm really happy. 
<laughs> yeah. do I need to be with anybody else? Because you don't get your validation from someone else. And as we get more old and that wise and more confident in ourselves, it's that idea that accountability comes from ourselves and not other people. It's such an important lesson. Oh, gosh. And I remember I, there was this one particular episode in on the show Sex in the City. And for people that, that know the characters, Carrie Bradshaw is one of the main characters. And she has this on-again, off-again relationship with this one particular man. And there's this one scene where they're supposed to go on this big, really nice vacation. And she's, you know, she lives in New York City. And he pulls the car up. And they're arguing. And she has her suitcases on the, on the sidewalk. And they're going to go. And he's like, get in the car. Let's go. And she stops. And this whole time, you know, you get to know these characters and she, you know that she's feeling that the relationship is over and that she needs to walk away. And she stops before she gets in the car and she says no. And I remember watching that show, Russell, and thinking, how, how, <laughs> how do you do that? Like, how do you get to that place where you stand up for yourself and you love yourself enough to say, no, I choose me. I choose me. And I, I will never forget watching the TV just like looking like, Okay, is this is this a thing? Like, yeah. <laughs> do, do people actually make that choice? Because I want to get to that place where I love me enough that I listen to my gut. And yeah, it just it seemed like a like a fictional thing. I think um, I remember going through a sort of a relationship thing myself, and remember going through this period where you you have to work out that you want to be with someone because you want to be, not because you need to be. And it's a it's a big life lesson, it's, it, particularly in resilience, particularly in confidence and all sorts of things, and whether it's self-love or just mental toughness, whatever you want to call it, it's such a fundamental part of who we are, isn't it, to know that it's desire rather than, well, transferring the, the um, accountability for your life on someone else, which is so important. Oh, such a hard lesson. And, and there was like, you know, all these tiny little invitations, you know, watching that episode of Sex in the City and, mm. and, you know, being really pushed out of my relationships by my romantic partners. Obviously, those were, were bigger invitations, but it was, it was sort of like chipping away at me slowly, slowly until I couldn't not listen anymore. So you, so you did something which is fantastic. You've gone from there to having a book published. I mean, that's a journey and a half. So how did that, how right. did that come about? And, and, and particularly go via the mannequins, because it's one of my favourite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to do with shopping, and I'm very happy. You carry on. I kind of missed that job. It was so fun. It really was fun. Um, but no, I, I let's see. How, okay, so I, you know, I had my rock bottom moment on the floor, and I was also pregnant at the time. So it was um, and I, I now that child is is ten. My son is ten, and I just decided that I, it was time. And so I, I really sort of put myself on the fast track to personal development and my own healing. And what that looked like was therapy and twelve step programs and um, lots of books and workshops and and then also signing up for life coaching because I was very interested in it. I also didn't know that it would be my own work. You know, when I was in training. As uh, you know, as well as learning how to facilitate the work and, and help other people, and then I actually got sober from from alcohol in 2011, and I had a very what they call high bottom. I wasn't, um, you know, my rock bottom definitely was my relationships falling apart, and then I started slowly but surely drinking too much, and um, I knew where that road was headed for me because my father had gotten sober 
met a couple decades before that when I was 18. And he was also what they call a high bottom, a high functioning alcoholic. And I just knew where that path would lead me if I kept drinking. So I got sober in 2011. And just a few months after that, I sat up in bed one morning, I'll never forget it. And I said to myself, I'm going to write a book because I had wanted to since I was a child. And I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, if I was going to self-publish or traditionally, like all of those questions I didn't have answers for, but I just started writing it. And that was, that book was published in 2013. And then, um, I loved it so much, decided to do it again. My second book just came out January 2nd. I make it sound so easy. (laughs) Well, exactly. Let's just unpick that a moment because I think a lot of people have a well, but there's, a, there's a sort of, um, what's the phrase? Everyone says, there's the sort of phrase that someone's, I can't know who said it first, everybody has a book inside of them. But yes. but the gestation is actually quite a difficult process, isn't it? It is tough writing a book. Um, gosh, that's, I, that's very subjective because I, can, I identify as being a writer. I've written since I was a child. Okay. And I know that that's not everyone's medium. I know that some people, their creativity lies somewhere else. So for some people, I think writing the book is torture. For me, it was not. Uh, the, the promotion of the book and you know going on a book tour and being in front of everybody, that to me is the hard part because I think I became a writer and a podcaster so I could hide. <laughs> nice. Good idea. Yeah, makes sense. Like, I want to do my work, but I want all of you to stay way over there. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, still working out all those feelings and things like that. But it's, yeah. it's been a huge lesson, and I've pushed myself and pushed myself out of my comfort zone and looked at my own kind of upper limit um, resistance that I have. And that has been, again, that's been the hard part for me. But I know it's very subjective. So talk to me about the first book, then, and then we'll get on to the next one. So Because the first one's obviously is great, so tell me more about it. That one, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, yeah. I, it was a blog post, actually. That's how it started, and it and it went viral in 2011 or 2010, and people loved it. It was just a list of, it was actually 49 ways at that time. It was just, a, you know, sentences, bullet points of little life lesson nuggets. Mm-hmm. So I took that concept and turned it into a book, and each chapter was only 750 to 850 words. They're short, kind of punchy uh, nuggets of, of wisdom and that, I mean, it's everything from body image to self-talk to going after your dreams, to figuring out what your values are, communication, the whole gamut. And that one was picked up, um, by, I, I was blogging about the whole experience about writing the book and it's sort of a miracle. A publisher reached out to me to see if I had found a publisher yet. I didn't even have a literary agent at the time, so I, I quickly scrambled, got an agent, and the book was published. Wow, fantastic. Well, it's the, yeah. way, it's the right way around, isn't it? It's good to have the agents coming to you, because that's a lot of work. It was kind of a miracle. I so, feel like I manifested it, though, because I did write it in my journal that I wanted yes. that to happen, and it did. So, <laughs> I was no surprise with anybody. <laughs> of, of the 52, of the 50, this is a very unfair question, but it would be rude of me not to ask it. Of the 52... Um, tips or uh, methods or techniques which is your favorite which is the one that's your you know the 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 one that never fails i would think that if i had to pick one you do it's so okay (laughs) russell's man but i have i would say it about your negative self-talk i mean i love it so much i expanded on it in my second book and it's it's really about 
I think there's so much advice in self-help that tells us just think positive thoughts, you know, turn your thoughts around into affirmations. And I have found very little to no success in that. So what I teach people to do is, you know, people have been talking to themselves the same way for decades and decades. So just, just learning how to recognize your negative self-talk before it takes over your day or your week, that's a huge win. So that's what I like to talk to people about the most. Hmm, interesting. And of the, of the 52, I know this is a really unfair question, which is the one which is your least favourite? Is the one that you're most uncomfortable about? Uh, that's a great question. I probably can't think of one easily because I pushed it out of my mind. Yeah, true. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because it's my least favourite. I think that maybe when I wrote about finding your, gosh, and I might be like misquoting myself, but... Anytime, you know, because I, I wrote that book back when I was still yeah. very much oozing with life coach training. So anytime I'm talking about, you know, doing what you love, I don't think I, I say this at all in the book, but the whole concept of like, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I just don't think that that's for everyone. Good. I think mm -hmm. that having a hobby sometimes is amazing enough as it is. You don't have to turn your passions into your job. You know, I think that's so true. I think there's, um, especially in the self-development world, this idea that if you just do what you love, you'll be successful. But of course, you know, sometimes when you do what you love, you end up doing it so much that you end up not loving it so much quite, you know. It's, it is, yeah. And sometimes you're just not good enough. And you, are good, and you are good enough, you are good enough at something else. And mm -hmm. I think, and it's interesting, one of the things that you talk about on your site is this idea of not being good enough. And, and that's a different thing from actually not having enough skill, isn't it? It's a very different a different idea because one's about self-talk and one's about competence, as it were. But um, it, it, is, it, it is something in the self-help literature that we all just have to say, say, as long as you want to do something enough, that will get you there. And I think it's such an old-fashioned idea now. It's not true. So it's like, you know, it's just like if you watch that show, um, uh, what is it? The Oh, the, the you know, so-and-so's got talent, Britain's got talent. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Um, all these shows are huge right now. So it's like, you're telling me the people who don't make it, yeah. the people who get cut, they just didn't want it enough. Yeah. I don't think so. You know, it's like when you have a whole conversation too about privilege and that, you know, culturally we are, it's, it's a big topic right now. And, and I do, I, I completely own that because I am a, I am a white, um, cisgendered, straight, able-bodied woman that I do get things easier than someone who is not. And so I just, I think that's such a, I think it's a load of crap, to be honest with yeah. you, saying, like, if you just want it bad enough, like, then you'll get it, or you didn't get it because you didn't want it bad enough, and I just, ugh, don't get me started on that. I just I feel strongly about it. But, it. but it's that idea of entitlement, isn't it? You know, so why, yes. why, why shouldn't you give it to me? Because I want it so much. So it's that, you know, it's a very childhood sort of, well, if I want it, surely I must have it, because that's what... That's what that worked when we were five, didn't it? You know, because she used to be able to have a tantrum and jump up and down and shout and scream, and and that's the sort of that's the sort of the net result of people who are saying that. Well, well, you know, I should have it. It's mine. How dare you? And it's and again, it's just not being responsible for the fact that you sometimes just not good enough. Sometimes it's yeah. Sometimes it's a confidence issue, and sometimes it's just the way I believe, just the way that the universe works. It's just the way the, the cookie crumbles, as they say. Yeah, and it's timing. Sometimes, sometimes you you're too early and too late. And uh, and and I like the point you make. Actually, sometimes your passion can be the best ho hobby you ever have, and it's it's the reason you work sometimes in perhaps a less demanding or fulfilling job because you're having a great life. Absolutely, yeah, for sure.
And I think it's it's something about the rise of internet business, isn't it? That actually, we take we do take our hobbies and turn them into into passions and things. And and you lot you meet a lot of people who are sort of doing cake baking sites, and they last about a year, and then they stop doing cake baking sites. And now they're doing knitting. Now they're not doing knitting anymore. Now they're they seem to be working as a digital marketing consultant. Which sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I shall do meowing next. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you're a writer, you're a podcaster, and you've written another book. You've shamed me already, so you're um, because I'm very inspired by the second second book, which, which looks amazing. Tell us about it. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, it's called How to Stop Feeling Like Shit: Fourteen Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, and it was born from just years of paying attention to my clients and the students in they were signing up for my classes and having conversations with. You know, as you as you pointed out, I, I work with women, and I don't think that I, I I don't think that these habits are just for women. They're they're surely not. That that is where my expertise lies. But it's it's really the the behaviors. Just to name a few of them, it's perfectionism and overachieving and people pleasing and control. These are the habits that we do because they work for us for a while. And these are also the habits and behaviors that we do because we think that they are protecting us from criticism and failure and shame and all of these things that we don't want and that we're trying to stay away from. But for my audience and myself included, we get to a point where they're just exhausting and they're not in alignment with the people that we want to be. That's how the book was born. And, that, and that's so true, isn't it? Because that, and what's interesting about the things you pull together there, uh, that they're all troublesome on their own. But when they become combinations, so when you have a perfectionist, people pleasing, control freak, then mm-hmm. you you have someone who really is is all over the place because they're completely um, living their life at the behest of someone else, but actually yeah. trying to control them at the same time. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and this is how relationships go wild, don't they? Yeah, and it's is I I know these because I lived them for a long, long time, and and like you said, many of them overlap. You know, I, I say that many of them are, are siblings, and they're in the same family, and like you said, one leads to another, and it is at the end of the day, it is just absolutely exhausting. It's funny, it's funny as well. We I come across these, run across these things at work, and um, and you see very difficult team relationships, very difficult um, conflict, very tricky, toxic sort of. Um, cultures being born from these particular things so it's yeah. it's interesting to see how um dealing with it yourself is important but actually if you if you don't it affects all areas of your life doesn't it yeah for sure and I, i'm glad that you said that because control like let's say control for an example if you're in a corporate setting you want somebody who ha- you know who can take control you want that person on your team or you want to be that person people who struggle with control are typically very efficient they're very productive they're very competent but like why question is and that's what much of the book is about is like when does it cross the line and start to negatively affect your life your work your relationships even your own confidence that's where it starts to get messy and you often see this thing in control with um, in relationships between men and women where one or either party where one party will begin to over control and then almost begin to become abusive by removing other people from the relationship. So they stop wives or partners seeing other friends. Because, mm-hmm. because of course, if you're over-controlling, it usually is a sign that you're vulnerable yourself. And so you can, you can move very quickly from being over-controlling to being highly abusive in relationships, can't you? Yes, I think that that is... Oh, gosh, we can have a whole separate conversation all about that and, and how much these, all of these habits 
really can come out in relationships. I think just romantic relationships in general, it's like you want to get to know your triggers and the things that you need to work on, get into a romantic relationship and you will see them in five minutes or yeah. less. Oh yeah. Or even better, somebody else's. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're a person that need has a has a need to control rather than seeing it as a as a toolkit or a set of competencies, the problem is when you parent as well. I guess that affects your mindset and the way that you bring a child up. Yeah, that's tricky. I have two children myself. I have a ten year old son and an eight year old daughter, and. I've, I always, I'm very transparent with the things I still struggle with to, to my own audience. And for a long time, it was perfectionism and control. I think I've come a long way with perfectionism, but control is still the thing that, that I struggle with a lot. And it's, it, it can become sort of sadly, like our children can become kind of the easy targets on this because they are children. And, and, you know, I, I was telling a story on my podcast or I was being interviewed and I told a story about the, um, my daughter had a, she's in second grade. She had a penguin project where she had to pick a penguin a type of penguin and do a project on it. And I had worked with, with her a tiny bit on it. And she had picked, um, it was called a fairy penguin. I thought yeah. it was very cute. I hadn't well, ever heard of it before. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I was like, Oh, this is, this is a good one. And then my husband took over the project and then I saw that they had done all this research on the emperor penguin. And I had a choice. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? I do. <laughs> I could have either talked to him about it and said, why did you do this? You know, we had picked up the fairy penguin and, you know, I wanted it my way. And what I told myself is, Andrea, it's a second grade project. It's penguins. It doesn't really matter. And that's, that's a question I often ask myself when it comes to control or, or even other behaviors is, is this that big of a deal? Like, is it really, you know, it, it's all about picking your battles and this was not worth picking my battle on. So that surrender and not letting go is a practice that I have to, I got the word surrender tattooed on my arm to remind myself that it is important for me to do that for my own sanity and for the sanity of my family. Yeah. So, so you're saying the antidote to control is choice. Is choice and yeah, and thinking about if it really is worth it, picking your battles and surrendering and letting go. And I think also a huge element of that is trust and, and trusting that it's going to be okay. You know, my, my example is a very rudimentary one, but, but sometimes it's about, uh, you know, with, we have teenagers and letting and starting to let them go and make their own choices and make their own failures so that they can learn. Mm. And, you know, I think that my generation, especially we are the generation of helicopter parents and I think we're setting our children up for, oh my gosh. Yeah, but that's control. It's, it's trying to control and engineer someone else's life. Okay. So if you've got, if, so how, how would you recognize that you're over-controlling in yourself? Do you think people know it or are they, um, or should, is there something they should look out for? I think anxiety might be an indicator. Um, you know, and I, I do think that, you know, generalized anxiety disorder is absolutely positively a real thing. I'm someone who was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder and panic disorder when I was 27. So I, I completely understand that. So I'm not saying that if you, if you um, have anxiety, it's just a control issue and you need to get a handle on it. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I do think that if you have spiked um, feelings of anxiety, you might want to look at areas of your life that you're trying to control where you can let go. Yeah. Yes. 
Good. I mean, there's a ton of exercises that we can do around there. But have you got have you got any have you got any tips as, as well around the people pleasing thing? Because often the people pleasing thing is something everybody needs to deal with as well, isn't it? Gosh, that's such a hard one, isn't it? Because yeah. we want to be liked, we want to please people, and it makes us feel good. <laughs> and we have you know a biological need to be accepted by other people. But I think that when it can again cross that line is when we are overcompensating for something or when we feel like we're being taken advantage of. And I think that even just a really easy uh, tip for that, and I should, I'm, I'm using air quotes when I say easy because this could be hard for many people listening, yeah. is to just pause before you answer yeah. and see how it feels. And if you want to say no, but you are terrified to do so, if it's your boss or your partner or a neighbor or your mother-in-law or someone that you always say yes to, you can buy time. You know, you can pause and feel that terror of, of wanting to say no. But pause and say, um, when do you need to know by? Or I'm going to have to look at my schedule and get back to you. Or I need to talk this over with somebody else. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Just buy yourself some time so you can figure out exactly how it is that you want to say no. Or you know, do whatever you need to do instead of automatically saying yes. So that's interesting, isn't it? You've, and, and I'm guessing this is the way you've bound the two books together because actually that's ability to have constructive self-talk is the way that you a get rid of the negative self-talk but also begin to control the thing around control and people pleasing and such like that is this i'm guessing that's the sort of secret isn't it yeah and it, it is again just listening to your yeah i love the way you said it listening to yourself talk and just pausing to um, let it all kind of sink in if you, you know if you have the time and again i don't think it's a matter of of having an internal pep talk and you know the goal I would love for people is to be compassionate with yourself but mm. I think that as long as you can just notice that voice that's telling you oh my god she's going to think you're such a jerk if you say no or you have to say yes to this project or else you'll never get that promotion mm. like listen for those types of voices and and hopefully be able to challenge them or just even at the very least acknowledge that they're there yeah. because many times we don't we just we just take for granted that they're there and they just become this background noise, this background music that we accept as truth. Mm. Well, they're there to help us, but the thing is they get out of control, don't they? Have too much power, I suppose. Yeah, they're just there to help us. I mean, this is this is fear and shame manifested is what it is. And in the caveman days, many, 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 many years ago, this was the voice that kept us safe. Yeah. And we have evolved where there are no saber-toothed tigers chasing us anymore, where if we get, um, you know, if someone doesn't like us, we're not facing imminent death as it was when we lived in tribes and communities before. Yeah. So, but we, our brains haven't changed. You know, we still have that panic that goes off in that old lizard brain that tells us to abort mission, you know, and just do whatever you need to do to survive. It's just not the case anymore. Brilliant. Um, so, Andrea, if people want to get their myths on the book, how are they going to do it? Let's see where you are. We're on um, Amazon UK. We're actually in most bookstores around the world at this point. And um, also, there's links on my site at yourkickasslife.com. Yeah, so let's just say that. It's yourkickasslife.com uh, forward slash books. And tell us the title again. 
The newest one is how to stop feeling like shit. 14 habits that are holding you back from happiness. See, I prefer I prefer he- hearing you say that. It sounds better when you say it than when I do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really intrigued. Can I ask you a very stupid question here? Um, you've got 14 habits in this book and you had 52 ways in the other one. Is there some sig- mm-hmm. uh, Have those numbers got any sort of significance for you? No, it's no. funny. Uh, Ac- the, the first, The first book was, again, born from that blog post, but the second book, uh, to be totally honest with you, I the original title was How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, A Guidebook for Women. Right. And the publisher, when you when you sell your soul to traditional publishing, I'm, I'm joking, <laughs> when you sign on the contract, you... Um, you have to be flexible creatively and they wanted a different subtitle. And so we went back and forth for a long time and that's what we settled on. And, um, it was their suggestion to do 14 habits. So the 14 habits were already written, but it was their suggestion to actually put it in the subtitle. Brilliant. Well, I, I, um, I'm looking forward to pre-ordering my copy and, um, I'm looking forward to reading it. I think it'd be absolutely fascinating. And, um, I think you've got a really interesting way of being able to um, bring across the subject. So it's fascinating. Thanks so much for your time today, Andrea. Thank really you so much for having me. Really enjoyed our time together. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, I'm going to say this, I'm going to be contentious here. I think men can learn from this as well. How about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely, I agree. So thanks ever so much. I hope people flock to buy the book and um, and for um, and have a look at your site as well because I think it's got a ton of really interesting um, podcasts in particular. And uh, thanks so much for spending time with us today and all the very best for the future. You take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.